Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuhu. Ramadan Mubarak to you and yours. This Ramadan, as we all gather to share a meal with our loved ones, we need to remember those in Gaza who are also gathering to share a meal with so many who aren't there that were just there a year ago. Since October the 7th, the Human Development Fund has assisted over 200,000 people in Gaza, providing them with essential aid such as food baskets, water, hot meals, winter items, shelter, hygiene kits, and baby formula. Your generous contributions are making a significant impact, especially in Rafah. Let's sustain this momentum and continue providing crucial support during this sacred and blessed month. Please visit hdfund.org slash alam. That's hdfund.org slash qalam, Q-A-L-A-M, to learn more about our global reach this Ramadan and choose where you'd like to direct your support during this blessed month. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make this month a time of mercy, solace, acceptance, and triumph for the ummah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And may Allah continue to use all of us as a means and never replace us. Ameen, Ya Rabbil Alameen. You're listening to Qalam Institute's podcast series, Sirah, Life of the Prophet, peace be upon him. Qalam is pleased to announce the Khatib Training Workshop. Find out more at khatibworkshop.com. That's K-H-A-T-E-E-B workshop.com. Bismillahi walhamdulillah wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. In the previous session that we had, we were covering the very monumental occasion of the first revelation upon the Prophet ﷺ. And of course, I mean, it goes without saying, this is something that all of us sitting here, we obviously understand and we realize what a great moment that was. Um, not only was it probably the greatest uh, moment and the most profound occasion from the life of the Prophet ﷺ, but it very well could be called one of you know, the greatest moment in human history. It's the greatest turning point in the history of the world. That the greatest prophet, the finality of prophethood, and the greatest of the messages of God, and the greatest miracle that humanity has ever witnessed, all of that was engaged on that one day. All of that was initiated on that one day. And for those who have been listening to or attending the Sirah sessions that we've been doing over the last 30 some odd sessions or whatever, one thing we've been noting is that one of the things I've tried to communicate in these Sirah sessions is, that the journey of the Prophet ﷺ up till this point was not some random occurrence of history. It wasn't just some random convergence of different events leading up to all of a sudden out of the blue for no reason whatsoever, with no preparation at all. Then the message comes to the Prophet ﷺ. But rather when we study the life of the Prophet ﷺ intricately, and we meticulously look at every aspect of his life, we begin to understand one thing, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the Prophet was meant for this. From the very beginning of his creation, his existence, like we read the narrations, the ahadith, Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal has uh, mentioned many of these narrations in ahadith in his musnad, where when the Prophet was asked, that mataju that when were you made a prophet? And the Prophet said that I was made a prophet when Adam was in between the state of, you know, um, 
dust or the clay and before the, uh, the, the soul was breathed into Adam. That at that point in time I was made a prophet. Meaning that's from that time on, from the very earliest, exi- from the beginning of human being's existence. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created the human being, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had designated the fact that the finality of his message and prophethood would come at the hands of this amazing man named Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So everything has been leading up and building up to this point. So it's a great moment, it's, it's momentous. And it's a, it's a huge turning point. And it's a realization of so many things. Little, little things that were happening throughout the life of the Prophet ﷺ. Little things that he was constantly coming across and feeling and happening to him. And now everything is materializing and everything is being realized. And so at this point in time, last session, which was uh, two weeks ago, we talked about the exact occasion. We talked about how about six months... Before the first revelation, the Prophet ﷺ started to have dreams. And those dreams would come true. So he would see dreams and those dreams would be realized. And this was, as I mentioned, the Prophet ﷺ has mentioned that this would happen with all the Prophets and all the Messengers. This is how Allah would prepare them for divine revelation. Because, you know, one thing that's, that's a bit of, one, one issue that we have, as a community in the study of the seerah, the life of the Prophet ﷺ is, and, and I understand where this comes from, it comes from admiration and adoration for this great remarkable man, the greatest human being that ever walked the face of this earth. We have so much admiration for the Prophet ﷺ that at times we can um, you know, think of and we can talk of the Prophet ﷺ in very superhero-like terms. I remember when we did the intro to the seerah at the beginning of this series, I talked about especially in this culture, especially right now, you know, in this culture that we have today in entertainment, where we have, you know, superheroes and things like that, that there's this type of fascination. So people see Superman, alright, he's invincible. He doesn't feel anything, nothing happens to him, he's invincible. And so a lot of times what begins to happen is that kind of warps our understanding and our own reality. So when we talk about the Prophet ﷺ, the Prophet ﷺ was remarkable. He was the most amazing, complete human being that ever lived. Having said that, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala still left him open. It is by the will and decree of Allah that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala left, still left him open um, to pain, to difficulty. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allowed for him to experience difficulty, adversity, pain, disappointment, these types, the human experience was still there with the Messenger of Allah sallallahu He bled, he cried. And so when you look at it from the human perspective, you have to understand how shocking and how overwhelming and how, you know, earth shattering this experience could be for someone. You're going about your business, you're doing what you normally do, and then out of the blue, out of nowhere, an angel comes to you and gives you the word of God. It's very possible that it, it, could, it could actually you know, fracture, it could damage someone's even psyche. It could cause severe trauma to a person. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created a system where the prophets and the messengers, they would be gradually acclimated to this experience. That there was a warm-up exercise, if you will, leading up to this great experience. And one of those warm-up exercises was that for six months prior to the first revelation, that they would see dreams. And those dreams would come to fruition, they would come to reality. Right? And it would occur exactly as they had seen in the dream. 
And what this naturally did was once, once it happens, okay, maybe you just kind of think that it's just my mind playing tricks on me. Twice it happens, maybe it's a coincidence. Three, four, five, for six months straight when this happens, you start to realize something is going on here. And the biggest thing that happens is you begin to trust your heart. The next time you see a dream, you expect it to happen. You expect this to actually happen. So this was so that the Prophet ﷺ would trust his heart. That his mind, the world around him, the people around him, everyone would tell him, no, 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 what you think you've seen is obviously not true. There's no way this could be true. But he would learn to trust his heart to the point where when he had that interaction, he had that exchange with Jibreel ﷺ, he knew it was true. Because he trusted his own heart. And so that's what was going on with the Prophet ﷺ. Then again, we talked about how slowly he drew more inclined towards finding times to isolate himself from people and from the elements around him. He started to desire, he started to want to spend time alone. When in reality, it's not really time spent alone. From a human, from a social perspective, it's spending time alone. But in reality, time spent alone is actually time spent with time spent with Allah. That's what salah is. That's what salah is. You disengage from the entire world around you, spending quality time alone, but you're not really spending time alone, you're spending time with Allah. Muraqaba, dhikr, salah, dua, recitation of Qur'an. This is time spent with Allah, but you, it, from a worldly perspective, from a social perspective, it's time spent alone. So to again, Make the Prophet ﷺ more comfortable with this element. Because the Prophet ﷺ was a very deep, thoughtful human being. By no means was the Prophet ﷺ some overindulging, social, you know, um, socially like really, you know, the Prophet ﷺ wasn't like a party animal or something. The Prophet ﷺ wasn't like an overly like social person who just all the time was talking and in public and the center of attention. The Prophet ﷺ wasn't like that. He was a very profound, deep, thoughtful human being from childhood. He was very reflective. We've talked about this. But at the same time, the Prophet ﷺ was also a very caring human being. A very caring and considerate human being. Which meant that the Prophet ﷺ did pay a lot of attention to his family members. He did spend a lot of time with his family. He spent a lot of time with his uncle, with his wife, with his children. He spent a lot of time, you know, even caring for people, taking care of people. When people would have a need, when people have a situation, they would feel comfortable to come and speak to him and talk to him. And he would sit with them and he would give them time, quality time. And he would help people. So he was so much at the service of people and his family members and the people around him and society and his family, that at the same time, you know, to... to Embrace the experience of prophethood because we know well, what's that beautiful remark that the family of the Prophet ﷺ notes about him that the Prophet ﷺ was very loving and very comfortable and very casual and very accessible at home. Very accessible at home. But when the adhan would be called, they say that it, it's like he would become a stranger to all of us. He was a man on a mission. It was time to go for salah, it was time to pray. So to prepare the Prophet ﷺ for that as well, that you will, have time, you will have to spend time with Allah in this manner, that he started seeking out seclusion, isolation, in the cave of Hira, primarily during the month of Ramadan. The i'tikaf in the month of Ramadan was even used to prepare the Prophet ﷺ for Nubuwa and Risala, 
for prophethood. And it's a sunnah of the Prophet that persisted till the very end of his days. So now when he's in the cave of Hira, on this one occasion, and this was during the 40th year of the Prophet life. This was the 40th year of his life. He was 40 years old at the time. There is actually some, there, there is some uh, discussion amongst classical scholars as to was he a little bit younger or was he a little bit older? Some of the classical scholars say no, he was 36, 37 years old. Some say no, he was about 42, 43 years old. The reason why that little, and this, these are minority positions, but the reason why this comes up is because immediately following prophethood, there was about two and a half, almost three, three, there was about two to three years of a time period where it was very quiet, it was very silent, there wasn't a lot of active preaching and a lot of active da'wah going on, and there was even very little to no revelation during this time, because the Prophet was being given time to completely fully embrace this whole role in this experience. And so based on that, they kind of timeline it differently. So those scholars who say that, no, the Prophet was 42, 43 years old when revelation began, when he became a prophet, because they're not counting that initial time period. They count that as the build-up to revelation. Those who say, no, he was you know, 36, 37 years old, or 38 years old in some narrations, they basically start counting from the very first time he started going to the cave of Hira. So from the very first time he started going to the cave of Hira, they said Nubuwa began. So it's basically just semantics. There is the immediately Qubayl and Nuzul. There is the time immediately prior to the first revelation. Then there is a revelation and then there is the immediate aftermath. There is the, if you will, some time off after the first revelation to allow the Prophet to fully embrace and recover from this experience. So it's basically just, a, it's understandable why that range exists. Because scholars are basically marking the beginning of prophethood, either from the first time he went to the cave of Hira, or they're counting it from the first time he started preaching openly. But in reality, it's in the middle right there. Because the first time he went to the cave of Hira, he was preparing for this experience. Then the first revelation occurred. And then the Prophet started preaching publicly a couple of years down the road when that command came from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And when he was ready for it as well. Because it came with a whole slew of other issues. So this is a little bit of a discussion here. Now, so it was the 40th year of his life. When did the first revelation occur? So the first revelation occurred on a Monday. The first revelation occurred on a Monday. And this is well established, well documented through many different narrations and a hadith on the Prophet ﷺ when he was asked about fasting on Mondays. Because the Prophet ﷺ was very particular about fasting on Mondays. When he was asked about fasting on Mondays, the Prophet ﷺ said, that's the day that I was born on and that's the day that I received first revelation. So it was a Monday. What month was it? The vast overwhelming majority of, of, the, of classical scholarship is of the opinion that it was the month of Ramadan. It was the month of Ramadan. As evidence, Ibn Ishaq in his seerah directly actually correlates this to the ayah of the Qur'an, شَهْرُ رَمَضَانَ الَّذِي أُنزِلَ فِيهِ الْقُرْآنَ And I know in the tafsir of the ayah, if you ever sit down and read or study or listen to the tafsir of that ayah, in the tafsir of that ayah, there's also mentioned that, no, this could also be talking about when the Qur'an was brought down to Sama'ud dunya Sama'ud dunya that the Qur'an was in the Allahul Mahfuz, the Qur'an was in the preserved tablet, and it was sent down to the heavenly skies, uh, excuse me, the earth, the, the sky of the earth, 
It was sent down to the lowest of the heavens, it was sent down to the sky of the earth, and it was positioned there to be revealed to the Prophet ﷺ over the span of 23 years. So some scholars say when Allah says that the month of Ramadan, in which Allah sent down, the, that the Qur'an was sent down in, Shahr Ramadan, الذي أنزل فيه القرآن, the month of Ramadan, in which the Qur'an was sent down, the Mufassirun say that no, the event that this is talking about, the sending down of the Qur'an, this means that it was sent down from the preserved tablet, عند Allah. And it was sent down to the sky of this dunya, of this world, the earthly sky. And it was sent down to there so that it could be revealed down to the Prophet ﷺ with convenience and ease. However, this does not preclude the fact. Because you see, there's a very simple rule of Qur'anic interpretation, Qur'anic exegesis, there's a very simple rule. And that is when the language of the Qur'an is general. We can have a hadith, we can have narrations, we can have situations, we can have asbabun nuzul, we can have situations at the time of revelation. And all of those will point to a very specific incident in a specific case. But as long as the language of the Qur'an does remain general, we do not restrict the meaning and the interpretation of the ayah. So for instance, if you know this ayah very clearly, very generally says, the month of the Qur'an, in, uh, the month of Ramadan in which the Qur'an was sent down. The month of Ramadan in which the Qur'an was sent down. That's it. It generally says that. So based on that narration that it was sent down from the Lawhul Mahfud to the sky of the dunya, yes, we can take that as one meaning of it. You understand the difference? We don't take that as the only meaning because the language of the Qur'an is general, but we take that as one of the meanings of it. It is one of the applications of it. But as long as the language of the Qur'an remains general, and it is not specific to this instance, then we will leave the meaning of the ayah open to other cases, other situations and other instances at the same time. A very other, uh, a good practical example of this is, when you read an ayah of the Qur'an, when you read, uh, you're reading some passage of the Qur'an, you know, um, there's the ayah from Surah Al-Furqan. وَيَوْمَ يَعَضُ الظَّالِمُ عَلَىٰ يَدَيْهِ يَقُولُ يَا لَيْتَنِي تَخَطُ مَعَ الرَّسُولِ سَبِيلًا يَا وَيْلَةَ لَيْتَنِي لَمَا تَخِذْ فُلَانًا خَلِيلًا That it basically talks about a person on the Day of Judgment who will gnaw his own arm off because he will feel regret and remorse and he'll say, I wish I would have gone with the Prophet. I wish I would have taken up the Prophet's cause. Like I would have joined up with the Prophet. I would have followed the Messenger. And then he says, I wish, he, he'll curse himself and he'll say, I wish I never took this guy to be my friend. I wish I never took that guy to be my friend. Now there is a narration which says, this is talking about Umayyah bin Khalaf and Abu Jahl. Umayyah bin Khalaf was very good friends with Abu Jahl. Umayyah bin Khalaf actually considered, thought about accepting Islam. So he went and he spoke to his best friend, his childhood buddy, Abu Jahl. What do you think Abu Jahl said? Yeah, I think it's a good idea. Of course not. Abu Jahl said, no, don't even dare make that mistake. That's terrible. How could you even think about that? So Umayyah bin Khalaf felt the pressure being applied to him. It was peer pressure. He felt pressure from his best friend and he didn't accept Islam. And he ended up dying without Iman. And so then the scholars say that this is talking about Umayyah bin Khalaf on the Day of Judgment and the severe regret and remorse that he, regret and remorse that he will have. That's a narration. This is talking about Umayyah bin Khalaf and Abu Jahl. It comes from a narration. But the wording of the ayah is general. It explicitly is very general. Which means it could apply to any other friend. It could apply to anybody else and their friend. 
So we, re- we keep it open. We leave it open. We re- allow it to remain open. And of course, this is part of the miraculous nature of the Qur'an. That the Qur'an can be talking about multiple things at the same time. That's the whole beauty of it. I oftentimes ask people, I say, you know, in, in speech, in rhetoric, there's a concept called the double entendre. When you say something, it actually means two things at the same time. And people think they're very intelligent or smart when they say something like that. People understand one thing and say, no, no, I meant that the other way around. Right? So if human beings are capable of saying two things at the same time, what about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? So the ayah of the Qur'an, so Ibn Ishaq in his seerah specifically relates this incident to this ayah. That the month of Ramadan in which the Qur'an was sent down. So the scholars say that the first revelation, Iqra bismi rabbika ladhi khalaq, was also in the month of Ramadan. It was in the month of Ramadan. At the same time, now what was the exact day in the month of Ramadan? So now there's a whole uh, array of different opinions. Some say that it was the 14th night. Some say that it was the 17th night. Some scholars say no, it was the 21st night. Some say it was the 27th night. Wallahu ta'ala a'lamu bisawab. Allah knows best exactly what night it exactly was. But Ibn Ishaq himself leans towards the position that it was the 21st night. Ibn Ishaq and many of the other classical uh, scholars of the seerah, the life of the Prophet ﷺ, who have documented his life, they heavily lean towards the fact that it was the 21st night of that month of Ramadan, in the 40th year of the Prophet ﷺ's life. So that's when this first revelation took place. In the previous session, we talked at length about this whole experience, where the Prophet ﷺ was in this cave, and the angel Jibreel ﷺ came to him. And it startled the Prophet ﷺ. Where did this man come from? Why is he here? What's he doing here? And then it talks about how Jibreel ﷺ told the Prophet ﷺ to read. And the Prophet ﷺ objected saying, I, I, I don't read. Like I don't read. Stating a fact, I don't. And Jibreel ﷺ then squeezed the Prophet ﷺ. And I talked about how it was applying that pressure because you have to understand the Prophet ﷺ is being taken from 0 to 60 in instantly. That's something like when you talk to anybody else about accepting Islam or learning their deen, you know that there's a whole journey, there's a whole process. Human beings require a certain amount of time. But with messengers, with prophets, there's not that luxury. So in an instance, they have to achieve something that would take lifetimes to achieve. And so this is almost that transference from Jibreel ﷺ to the Prophet ﷺ. So he squeezes him and applies pressure. And the Prophet ﷺ says that he squeezed me until I just gave up. He was breaking him down, literally. Getting him to just let go. Just give in. Leave the apprehensions. Leave the hesitation. Leave everything else behind. And just give in to this experience. Embrace this experience. Allow this to enter into your heart and internalize this. So he says, he squeezed me until I just gave up. And then the Prophet, and then he said, he left me for a moment. Let me catch my breath. And we talked about last time how that's very important. That sometimes a person takes time, requires time. That interval in between is very key, very important. Let him catch his breath. Because the purpose here is not to kill him. The purpose here is not to destroy him. But the purpose is to prepare him. And then second time he told me, read. And he said that, I, I can't read, I don't read. Ma'ana biqari. So then he said, he, again, he squeezed me until I just gave up. Hatta minni al-juhd. And then he left me and I ca- caught my breath. Thumma arsalani. 
And then he said, again he told me to read. And I said, ma'ana biqari, I don't read, for the third time I told him. And he squeezed me again until I gave up, and then he left me, he released me. And then he told me, iqra' bismi rabbika alladhi khalaq. Read, and the tafsir of this ayah is very interesting, because the ba' can also be considered ba'ul isti'ana, which means the ba' of assistance. So read with the help of the name of your Lord. I mean, the only way you'll be able to do this is through the help of your Lord. Read with, by the help of the name of your Lord. And he says, اقرأ بسم ربك الذي خلق The one who created. It doesn't say what he created, because he created everything. Anything. And then, ذكر الخاص بعد العام, and then specifically he says, اقرأ بسم ربك الذي خلق خلق الإنسان من علاق Created, he created the human being from a blood clot. From a clot of blood. اقرأ ربك الأكرم That read, and your Lord is the most dignified, the most honorable. الذي علم بالقلم The one who taught using the pen. It doesn't say what he taught. Because he taught the human being everything he knows. But then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala specifically says, علم الإنسان ما لم يعلم He taught the human being that which he didn't know. And this basically, you have to understand, aside from these ayat being so fundamental, so profound, that they define everything. But to the Prophet ﷺ, you also have to understand what it means in that instance. You are being made a prophet. You are inner, physically interacting with an angel. You are receiving the word of God. You are directly communicating with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. All of this that is going on, He's simply being told that, don't let any of this cause any apprehension to you, because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created everything. And He created the human being from something as insignificant as a clot of blood. All of this is the arrangement of Allah. So this has all been arranged by Allah, just like everything around you, the world that you live in has been created by Allah. And as far as you learning something new, something you didn't know before, then understand Allah taught the human being everything that the human being knows and has. And this is but a part of that. This is also being taught to you by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala directly. So have no fear, have no apprehensions of this experience. Now we talked about this. So now the Prophet ﷺ it says, فَرَجَعَ بِهَا رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صلى الله عليه وسلم يَرْجُفُ فُؤَادَهُ فُؤَادُهُ So this is the narration, the actual narration that's found in Sahih Bukhari as well. That the Prophet ﷺ now came back with this revelation, with this burden and this weight that he's carrying, يَرْجُفُ فُؤَادُهُ His heart was just, just it, was, it was shaking. His heart was shaking. And he was filled with all these different emotions going through his heart. And you can just imagine what a person would be going through after experiencing something like this. So the Prophet ﷺ returns back. There are other narrations now. There are other narrations which are found that are supplementary to this narration, which are all authenticated, that actually say that when the Prophet started to return back from here, and he's leaving the cave of Hira, he starts to think to himself. And the Prophet says, I never had as much, like the people that I really, really used to have um, a strong dislike for, were some of the very misguiding, misleading poets. Soothsayers, fortune tellers. I never liked people like that. Because I felt like they preyed on the weak. They preyed on people's ignorance and people's insecurities. I didn't like people like that. And he goes, I've been through this whole experience and I was still trying to deal with it and grapple with it. And I was like, what just happened with me? And he goes, I never want to be that type of a person. 
I've just been through a very tremendous experience, but I don't want to be that type of person who will be affiliated or associated with such people. I don't want to fall into that same predicament. And it said that the Prophet started climbing up a mountain. That he started climbing up the mountain, he started to think to himself, that rather than ever take advantage of anyone like with this ever again, I'd rather go and just kill myself. But then abuse what has been given to me or do anything bad. So you see the Prophet from the very beginning felt this weight of, can I live up to the responsibility that's been given to me? Can I live up to what is being expected of me? Can I, can I give it what it deserves? Can I serve this cause, this mission, this message properly? Am I worthy or not? And so the Prophet says that, you know, as, he, as soon as he left there, he started to think this to himself. I don't want to be someone like that. So he started climbing up a mountaintop and thinking to himself, I'd rather kill myself, destroy myself, than, than abuse what has been entrusted to me. And he says, as he was, because you have to understand what a person is going through at that time. And as and, and this is another aspect of studying the seerah, because this is this story is, you know, one the this is something that Muslims are told from childhood. This is something we've heard hundreds of times. So a lot of times we take it for granted. But if you really try to understand the human experience of what that must have been like, you can just imagine. So the Prophet has all these thoughts racing through his heart and his mind. And he's climbing up this mountain, thinking this to himself. And he says, all of a sudden I heard someone speaking to me from above me. And he said, Ya Muhammad. He said, Oh Muhammad, Anta Rasulullah. Innaka Rasulullah. You are the messenger of God. Wa ana Jibreel. And I am Jibreel. And the Prophet says, I looked up to see where I was hearing the sound from. And this is one of the first of the two occasions on which the Prophet ﷺ saw Jibreel ﷺ in his true, actual, physical form. And the Prophet ﷺ describes what he saw. And the, the other instance is actually, it's also in the very beginning part of the, the period of prophethood. So we'll be probably coming to that in, hopefully in a few sessions. We'll talk about that one there. But nevertheless, I'll tell you the full description of what the Prophet ﷺ saw. A lot of the description actually comes from the second occasion, the second time. But I'll explain it here. The Prophet ﷺ explains that his feet were on the ground. One narration says that his feet were slightly above the ground. But he says his head was all the way up into the clouds in the sky. The Prophet ﷺ describes Jibreel ﷺ as having 600 wings at another occasion. 600 wings. And the Prophet ﷺ says that when he opened two of his wings, it covered the entire horizon from the east to the west. And so the Prophet ﷺ says, I looked up and I saw Jibreel in the sky. And he says, I looked to the right and I could, all I could still see was Jibreel. He says, I looked to the left and all I could see was Jibreel. And the Prophet ﷺ says, oh, it was so overwhelming that I almost wanted to see the sky. Just to be able to just kind of... So I wouldn't feel like overwhelmed. I wanted to see the sky. I felt like I needed to catch my breath, like see the sky. But he says, everywhere I turned, all I could see was Jibreel. He covered everything. All I saw was Jibreel. And he was telling me, he says, you are the messenger of Allah. Don't have any doubts about this fact. You are the messenger of Allah. And I'm Jibreel. I'm here for you. 
I'm the one who came to you. I'm the one who was there with you when you received that first message. Don't worry about it. And that's why the Prophet refers to Jibreel as one of his best friends. He says, I have two buddies, I have two homies in the sky, Jibreel and Mikael. And he says, I have two on the earth, Abu Bakr and Umar. So this is Jibreel with whom the Prophet shared a very you know, deep friendship. And so he's letting him know, he goes, no, 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 you're the messenger of Allah. Ya Muhammad, you're the messenger of Allah. And I'm your friend Jibreel. Don't worry, relax, calm down. So he said, as overwhelming as even that experience was, he said it kind of, this, this strange type of calmness kind of washed over me. And the Prophet says he returned home to his wife, Khadija radiallahu anha. He says, but still he was obviously still very shaken up. And he says that he came home and he sat down and he told his wife, Zammiluni, Zammiluni, cover me up, cover me up. Wrap me up in a shawl and a blanket. They wrapped him up in the blanket until he finally just kind of calmed down a little bit more. Then he spoke to Khadija, and it said beautifully, something profound we learn even about you know, spousal relations, and we learn about how to interact and how to deal with certain situations and cases. Khadija radiallahu anha was one of the most amazing human beings. You know, what was one of the most amazing women, was one of the most amazing human beings that ever lived. And she was one of the best wives that ever lived. And Khadija radiallahu anha, when the Prophet ﷺ came home in this condition, this state, she covered him up, wrapped him up in a shawl and a blanket, and said she sat down next to him. And she didn't press, what happened, what happened, what's going on, what's going on, what's going on? No, she didn't, she didn't press him. She gave him time. And the Prophet ﷺ, until he just relaxed, he calmed down. And then, she just sat there next to him. She was just there for him, holding his hand. Until the Prophet then himself started to tell Khadija radiallahu anha what had exactly happened, what had transpired. And then he tells her exactly what had occurred. And the Prophet said, لَقَدْ خَشِيتُ عَلَىٰ نَفْسِي I feared for my life. I feared for my life. I thought this experience would just, it would kill me. I feared for my life. Khadija radiallahu anha spoke some of the most amazing words that any human being has ever spoken. After of course the messengers of Allah, these are some of the most amazing words that any human being has ever spoken. She said, Kalla. She said, no, 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 absolutely not. Under no circumstances should you fear for your life. Wallahi, I swear by Allah. La yukhzik Allahu abadan. Allah will not ruin you, Allah will not disgrace you. Innaka la tasilu rahim Because you... Maintain very good, strong relations with your family. And you honor your guests. You honor your guests. And you carry the weight and the burdens of people. You take care of people who are less fortunate, who can't take care of themselves, you take care of them. And you're always looking for any good cause. And you're always there to aid and to help in any good cause that presents itself to you. Khadija radiallahu anha, when she said these words, as, as amazing as they are, the Prophet it, it again had a very calming effect on the Prophet 
she, she, she consoled the Prophet and, and, and she strengthened the Prophet through her words. And the Prophet felt more comfortable, more confident. After that it said that, when some narrations say that Khadija radiallahu anha initially, she went to go see Warqa bin Nawfal herself. Warqa bin Nawfal was the cousin of Khadija radiallahu anha. He was a cousin of Khadija radiallahu anha. I, I believe we've spoken about him in one of the early, early sessions when we were talking about pre-Islamic Arabia. We talked about the Hunafa. There was a handful of people who still worshipped a very, you know, um, they, they basically worshipped as pure as possible. They still worshipped one God and they were trying to stick as strictly as they could to the actual teachings of the prophets of the past. So there was literally a handful of such people. And Waraqa bin Nawfal was one of them who had traveled to the areas of Asham, And he had learned Christianity from some legitimate priests over there. And he had brought it back and he had basically spent a good part of his life afterwards translating the teachings of the Torah and the Injil into the Arabic language. And he was a worshiper of one God. He was a practitioner of Tawheed. And so... Warqa was one of those people. And of course, everybody knew him by that. That's the reputation that he had amongst his people. So his cousin Khadija radiallahu anha, knowing that Warqa always talks about stuff like this. What my husband Muhammad is talking about right now, Warqa has always spoken about things like this. So one narration says she first went to Warqa herself and told him what had happened. And Warqa was very intrigued. It said by this time he was a very old man. And he was so old that he had gone blind in old age. And when she told him, she, it said that Waraka sat up, he jumped up in excitement. And he started saying, this is the truth, this is the truth. And, she, and he requested her to bring him to me, I'd like to speak to him. And some narrations say, no, they went together for the very first time. In either case, they go to Waraka bin Nawfal. And when they reach Waraka, she... Khadija radiallahu anha tells the Prophet that you can trust him. Tell him what you told me. I trust him, that, therefore you can trust him. Tell him what you told me. And the Prophet tells Waraka what had transpired with him. Waraka, when he hears this, he's very excited, he's very overwhelmed. And Waraka says, هذا الناموس الذي كان نزل على موسى. He says, this is the same namus. The word that he uses is namus, which basically in ancient language, and some trace its origins back to the Greek language, that it basically means a carrier of a message or the carrier of the truth. Somebody who brings the truth, somebody who brings a message of truth. So he's referring to Jibreel alayhi salam, a malak, an angel as an namus, which seems very appropriate. Like even the Quran refers to Jibreel alayhi salam as nazala bihi ar-ruhul amin. So he says, had namus. This is the same angel that used to come to Musa alayhi salam. The same angel that used to come to Musa alayhi salam. And then he says, Ya laytani fiha jadha'an. Ya laytani fiha jadha'an. It's such a profound truth, he doesn't spend any more time trying to explain to the Prophet that this is true and this is real. He's so overwhelmed by what he hears that he says, Ya laytani. He, he starts thinking of himself. He says, I wish that I have life to witness this all come to fruition. 
I wish that I get to see that day. I hope to see that day. I want to be there. I want to be around. I want to be able to be active and take a part in this, in the establishment of this truth. He says, "Laytani akunu hayyan if yukhrijuka qawmuka." Ya laytani akunu hayyan if yukhrijuka qawmuka. He says, "I hope, I wish, I pray that I'm alive that when your when your own people will kick you out." So the Prophet ﷺ, when he hears this, because Warqa is basically saying, I want to be there, I want to stand by your side, I want to be your biggest aider and your biggest supporter, because this is the truth. This is the truth I spent my whole life looking for. This is the truth I've been waiting for. I want to be there for you. When the Prophet ﷺ hears this, and, and this is where another instance in the seerah that we'll talk about, the hijrah, the migration. The, the hijrah to Medina was a very glorious moment. See, one, one, one specific objective, goal that I have in this series of the seerah is to humanize a lot of these experiences of the Prophet ﷺ so we can connect with them, we can draw inspiration from them. So the Prophet of Allah ﷺ, you know the seerah is looked at as a very glorious, and it was a very glorious moment. It was the establishment of the Islamic State. It was giving the Muslims freedom. It was the establishment of that first masjid. So many different things were going on. But you, have to, you cannot discount the human factor. It was very tragic for the Prophet personally. To leave your home, to leave your family, to leave everything you know, everything that defines you, to where you spend more than 50 years of your life, is the only place you've ever called home to leave it? I mean, when you move from somewhere when you're 20, 30 years old, it feels like a tragedy. Imagine when you're 50 plus years old, 53 years old, and you have to leave your home. It's tragic. So the Prophet is so shocked by this suggestion, if you when your people will kick you out, he says, he interrupts Waraqah, he says, Abu Mukhrijiya Qawmi? Abu Mukhrijiya Hum? Well, are you they're going to kick me out? My people, my family? They love me. I I feel like I'm a part of this city. I'm Mecca. Lived my whole life here took part in the reconstruction of the Kaaba. Like this is, this is who I am. And these people, they love me. They have nothing against me. They would kick me out? And he says, Naam. Warqa tells him, yeah, they will. And then Warqa tells him, لَمْ يَأْتِ أَحَدٌ بِمِثْلِ مَا جِئْتَ بِهِ إِلَّا عُودِيَ Whenever anyone came with the type of message that you've come with, that person was always opposed. Never did a person ever bring what you are bringing, except that they were opposed, that they were made an enemy, that they became the sworn enemy of their people. I mean, the people turned him into an enemy of theirs. They turned on him, they turned against him. And he said, وَإِن يُدْرِكْنِي يَوْمُكَ أَنْصُرْكَ نَصْرًا مُؤَزَّرًا And he says, if I'm still around on that day, I will help you with everything I got. I will help you with everything I got. The narration actually says, ثُمَّ لَمْ يَنْشَبْ وَرَقَ أَنْ تُوَفِيَ Waraqa did not live for very long after that and he passed away. Before we talk about the passing of Waraqa, there are other narrations, which basically make it very clear that this was not Waraqa's only meeting with the Prophet ﷺ. There's one other very established narration that says shortly thereafter, the Prophet ﷺ had a regular practice of going and sitting near the Kaaba, and just sitting there in front of the Kaaba in deep thought and deep reflection. So the Prophet ﷺ did not, 
you know, stop with that habit of his. So even after the revelation, after all of this happened, the Prophet went to the Kaaba, sat down, deep thought, deep reflection, he's sitting there. And it said that, and this is shortly thereafter, this is in the next couple of days. And it said that Waraqah was there at the Kaaba as well, and he was sitting there in a corner, worshipping, doing his thing. And he said he saw the Prophet come in. And he got up and went to the Prophet And he again spoke words of support for the Prophet And he told the Prophet that I believe in what you're saying. And I hope to have the opportunity to stand by you and to help you. And it then said that he kissed the forehead of the Prophet He kissed the forehead of the Prophet and it said Warqa died. It said that he died thereafter shortly. Shortly thereafter he passed away. He died. And that's why the Prophet ﷺ, he says, there are multiple narrations where the Prophet ﷺ talks about Warqa. That he saw him in a dream later on. Or in some occasions after this incident was related, he was asked about Warqa bin Nawfal. And the Prophet ﷺ said, that I saw the priest... I saw the priest, because that's what he was known by. That was his title amongst his people. He was known as the priest. He says that I saw the priest wearing silk garments in paradise. And the Prophet ﷺ said, because he believed in me. Amanabi. He believed in me. He accepted like he accepted the message. And so he says that I saw the priest in silk garments and silk clothing in paradise. And Waraka died shortly thereafter. The Prophet of Allah ﷺ, in another narration, he actually says that when the Prophet ﷺ says, when he returned back from the cave of Hira, he says that he felt that the revelation that he had received, he said that he felt like it was written onto his heart. He said he felt like it was written onto his heart. Like he remembered every word, every instance, every sound. It was written onto his heart. And so this is that first revelation to the Prophet ﷺ. And this is the first time the Prophet ﷺ received divine revelation. And to talk very briefly about divine revelation. And we'll talk more, we'll, we'll continue on from here in the next session. What basically we'll continue on from here is, then there was a bit of a brief pause in revelation. And we'll talk about the exact details of that and what exactly transpired and how it exactly occurred. We'll talk about that. But the last thing I'll mention is divine revelation. Al-Wahi. Al-Wahi. Right? So what is exactly divine revelation and how did it exactly occur with the Prophet ﷺ? So there's different narrations which talk about how divine revelation would occur with the Prophet ﷺ. One instance, one occasion is this. Where Jibreel ﷺ comes to the Prophet ﷺ in his true actual physical form and he communicates the message of, from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to him. Another form of divine revelation to the Prophet ﷺ is when the Prophet, when Jibreel ﷺ would bring the message to the Prophet ﷺ, but for the majority of his life, aside from those two occasions, the rest of the times when, the, when Jibreel would bring the message to the Prophet ﷺ, he would come in the form of a human being. Because it was easier on the Prophet ﷺ. When I explain the second, because the first instance, the Prophet ﷺ just received the word of Allah. Iqra bismi rabbika ladhi khalaq. That in and of itself was so overwhelming that, you know, seeing Jibreel in his true actual physical form was overwhelming, but he was still dealing with receiving the word of Allah, which was even more overwhelming. But the second occasion where he sees Jibreel in his true physical form, we'll talk about that. It was, it was, very, it was too much for the Prophet ﷺ. 
So to make it easier on the Prophet ﷺ, Jibreel would come in the form of a human being. And in fact, the form of the human being that he would most often come to the Prophet ﷺ in was a sahabi by the name of Dihya. And he was from the tribe of uh, Al-Kalbi. Dihya Kalbi rahimahullah. Uh, radiallahu anhu, excuse me. Dihya Kalbi radiallahu anhu. He was a sahabi of the Prophet by the name of Dihya. And in fact, Dihya, he would visit actually, the, the sahabi named Dihya would visit the Prophet ﷺ very rarely. Very rarely. So that's one of the reasons why Jibreel ﷺ would come in this physical form. And on top of that, it's said about Dihya ﷺ that he was a very, extremely handsome man. He was a very handsome fellow. And so he would come in this form to the Prophet ﷺ because he was very pleasant. And he would come to the Prophet ﷺ in this form. And that's how he would bring the message. Third form of divine revelation to the Prophet ﷺ would be in the form of a dream where he would receive a message in his sleep, in a dream. The fourth form of divine revelation to the Prophet ﷺ is where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's words would directly be inspired within his heart. This is referred to in the Qur'an as, مِنْ وَرَاءِ حِجَابٍ أَوْ يُرْسِلَ رَسُولًا فَيُوحِيَ بِإِذْنِ مَا يَشَاءٍ مِنْ وَرَاءِ حِجَابٍ From behind a curtain, from behind a veil, from behind a screen, a barrier. That the words of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would directly be inspired within the heart of the Prophet And he would receive that divine revelation. And the final form of divine revelation that would come to the Prophet which was actually the, the, the harshest form of it, is that the Prophet said, كَمِثْلِي سِلْسِلَةِ jaras." He said it was like the long, continuous ringing of a bell. Very loud. And he said, it would pierce my head, my mind. And the Prophet ﷺ talks about how heavy and how difficult it was. And he said, it would weigh down on him. So much so that the camel that he would be riding, occasionally sometimes when he would be riding a camel, it would be so heavy, it would actually, the camel would be forced down, the camel would sit down. Aisha radiallahu anha says that one time, he was lying at home and he had his head on my leg, like his head in my lap. And the divine revelation came to him and she said, I felt like my leg would literally just get crushed. It was too much. And the Prophet would be exhausted after it was done. And it's actually mentioned that any of these forms of divine revelation, when the Prophet would receive them, he would sweat. And he would sweat profusely. And the, the Sahaba anhum note that there would be sweat on the forehead of the Prophet and it, would be, it could be the hottest day. Or excuse me, it could be the coldest day. It could be at night and it could be cold in the desert where there's no question, there's no reason for somebody to be sweating. But he'd be sweating and they said the sweat would be so warm, so hot, the perspiration, that you could literally see it steaming from his forehead. And so these are the different ways in which the Prophet ﷺ would receive divine revelation. So this is that first instance of divine revelation and the exact, uh, the immediate aftermath of this divine revelation. And inshaAllah, in the coming sessions, we'll talk about the first few days and the immediate aftermath of this first uh, and divine revelation upon the Prophet ﷺ. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us all the ability to practice everything we've said and heard, to learn about the beautiful life of our Messenger ﷺ, and to really use it as a guiding light and a guiding force for us in our lives. Jazakumullah khairan. Subhanallah wa bihamdihi. Subhanakallah wa bihamdik. Nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta. Astaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk.